I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Hi, friends and listeners. Hi to you, whoever you are listening right now, wherever you are. Today, we get to do something really cool which is look backward at the year we've just had as a show. Looking back at the whole year in general is a more intimidating task for a different day. But looking back at a year of thresholds conversations has been pretty extraordinary. To prepare for this episode, I sat down and just reviewed the list of everyone we talked to. And the list itself was pretty staggering to me. We've had poets like Eileen Miles and Rita Dove, Mary Rufel, Jericho Brown. We've had debut fiction writers like C. Pam Zhang and Raven Leilani, Disha Filia, as well as brilliant mid-career artists like Maggie Nelson, Hanif Abdurraqib, Lydia Millet, Melissa Phoebos, and Susan Orlean. We talked to graphic artists, activist artists, musicians, reporters, painters. It's just been an embarrassment of riches, and one of the truest pleasures and honors of my year to get to spend this time. One of the fun things about this show is that I don't know what people are going to want to talk about before we start recording. So the conversations feel really artist-led. I ask them to tell me a threshold, and then I follow where they go. And sometimes we talk about sex, sometimes about addiction or family, art, birds. We've talked about witches, cream of chicken soup, God, money, secrets, falling in love, falling out of love, socialism. It's been it's been a ride. So today we're collecting a few of these snippets of conversation that we loved from throughout the year, starting with Eileen Miles, who heard the prompt for the conversation and just refused it entirely. The starting point for these conversations is usually just my asking, um, what the first thing you thought of when when offered this prompt to consider a, a, a time in your life, a period, an event, a thing, an experience that felt like some kind of threshold or point of departure that then found its way into your work? And I'm wondering if you had like a first a first impulse of of what to to talk about. I mean, honestly, my first impulse was no. Was I, 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 and I thought I've thought so much about this actually, and I think, and I'll elaborate, but I'll, you know, because I just thought, oh, I don't like this thought, this this idea of a threshold, and I mean, and I and I realized that it's just like because I feel like on some level I feel like I'm very, I'm a very resistant personality, like I feel like I, um, like when my first when I think about my if I did, if I were to tell my drug story. It starts in childhood when I was um, I went to Catholic school and um, and I would go to the dentist. I was I was just so afraid of pain, so afraid of the dentist, so didn't like it. And so I would go to the dentist in my Catholic school uniform, which I don't know, just it seems like part of the visual. And I would sit I would sit in the chair and they did this wonderful thing, which began, um, you know, a whole aspect of my life, which was they put gas. They don't really do it so much at the dentist anymore. They put gas on my nose and I got completely high. And I was probably, I don't know, nine years old or something. And it just, the world was, but what, the reason I mentioned it was my first impulse when this amazing thing happened to me was no, 
I will not let this happen to me. And I don't know if it has to do with some kind of abuse that I'm not entirely um, cognizant of, but I just, my impulse to what turned out to be a great pleasure and something that completely changed my relationship with the dentist, because after that, I always wanted to go to the dentist and I was ready. But my, my reaction to this thing that was mind altering and was, was deeply instantly going sort of into me or how I apprehended myself at that moment was to resist it and to stop it and to not let it happen. Like I didn't want to be changed and I didn't want to, and I feel like, um, so I, 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 when I was given this prompt, I really had that same response. Um, but, but to elaborate, which is my truest answer, if I haven't already given it, which was that um, it's very funny. Anytime something big has happened in my life, and I mean, um, not not moving to New York to become a writer, which I've written about and I've thought about, and um, but more like. I don't know when I when in my early 30s, I stopped drinking and taking drugs. And I had a real fear that it would ruin me as a writer. And I, um, I started to tell myself something that I've been telling myself now for 30 years, which is that if um, becoming a lesbian didn't ruin my writing, why would becoming sober ruin my writing, you know, and then years later, I think in 19... <laughs> Let's see, I, I, I became an academic for the first time in like a real, I had a real teaching job and I was faculty at the University of California in 2002. And so I was hired as a full professor and I was given a big income. And I would say many things happened at that moment. I moved to the West Coast. I became a professor um, and I had a, I had a good income for the first time in my life. And I remember thinking that if being a lesbian and getting sober didn't ruin my writing, why would being an academic and having an income ruin my writing? And, um, and also, in, and I think moving to California, which is a big myth among New Yorkers, that if you move to California, it'll really ruin your life writing, you know? Um, and I would say, you know, and, and it just, it just goes on. I mean, I just think in, in 20, I mean, I've had different levels of, um, attention. I mean, I think having a career means is almost defined by the idea of a line that looks a little bit like recording in progress, which is that suddenly you're like, whoa, whoa, people are really seeing me now. And then after that, no, no, nobody's seeing me now. Whoa, people are seeing me now. Whoa, no, nobody's seeing me. But in 2016, I, start, I, I did have a hit of a bunch of celebrity and I got a lot of attention. And I kind of, even though I often feel like nobody sees me, I still, I, I just am being a writer at some level of recognition that I don't think I'll probably lose unless I just, I don't know what, I don't know what I would have to do, but I've sort of, you know, I sort of already have written enough books that I'm sort of in it in some way. And I'll, I'll, even if I stop, but, but I had the same thought. I thought if being known or quote famous, or if, if all these things haven't ruined my life writing, why would fame or success or celebrity wrote my writing. So I think, I guess that, I think that is my answer, which is that, that, and I think in a way it has to do with um, something else I'm really interested in, which is hyperbole. You know, it's, it's just, um, I think people make bold, huge statements, not in order to say something that's true, but to open a space. And for me, the way I sort of open that sp space weirdly is kind of in a negative way. I kind of open it in a resistant way so that it's sort of like the way I've experienced these, I guess, thresholds is to say, um, if this whole litany of things have not 
ruined whatever it is that I understand as my writing practice. Why would blah? And then the, the delight of that statement or that moment clears the space temporarily. And I just feel like myself, you know, practicing poet, practicing artist, free for a moment, because I think that like ba and ba and ba haven't done it. Why would ba? I feel like one of the, in a way, like in terms of a threshold, it feels like that was a kind of moment of growing up, which, you know, which I feel like I'm constantly sort of having those moments of growing up. But one of the moments of growing up was like, life is sad. <laughs> like to be in the presence of your, um, to be in the presence, to be, to be, <laughs> you know, of course you can have a kind a certain kind of orientations that do not make it sad. But my own particular orientation is like, it's sad that my beloveds are going to die or are going to feel pain. You know, it's sad. Um, and that is not a sadness for me that I can, you know, wipe away. It's not going to go away. It's just a fact of my, my being alive, you know? Um, and so in a way it's like the, the, um, sort of being able to attend to that. I think part of the terror is like, yeah, it doesn't go away. Sadness doesn't go away. Like to me, the idea of like getting over something or moving through something, or I, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm not a psychologist or anything. So, you know, or whatever, but I'm like, my interest is in like, yeah, things change, but my, my sense is that you sorrow is not the kind of thing that you kind of like, oh, okay, got over that. Sorrow feels to me like a kind of abiding understanding of one's life. You know, the sorrowful thing, if it becomes less sorrowful, it probably maybe time makes a thing less sorrowful, maybe, or maybe different perspectives. Obviously that can make things less sorrowful, but it feels like sorrow itself. And often the sort of thing that we feel sorrowful about remains a kind of, you know, it's not like, all right, well, I took my vitamins and now I'm not sorrowful anymore. You know, it's like, nah, man, I'm fucking sad. And I'm, and I'm, and today I'm so, I'm so happy. <laughs> and I'm sad too. Like, that's okay. You know, I sort of like, I planted my stake in this mythology of the American West. Um, and I'm just going to put an asterisk here and say that I think over the course of writing this book and talking about this book, I've used the words mythology and history much more sort of loosely and broadly um, than most people use them because I think there is actually a huge, a great deal of overlap between the two ideas, right? Um, I think that one of the things I worked through while, while writing this book was the fact that history is not a collection of objective facts. Um, it's not static. It itself is a series of narratives created by people in power. Um, you know, for example, the the cowboy era of the American West has such a huge presence in the American cultural imagination, but actually that period only lasted for like 20 years, which you would never think um, if you saw like how how much that genre has um, you know sort of leaked through through our culture. Anyway, so. Um, and that's just to say that I was writing this novel about the gold rush, a period of the 1800s. But at the same time, I had just been working in tech. And I was thinking a lot about how the tech boom on the West Coast is just the most 
updated form of the gold rush, right? It's all these people rushing to the coast with this idea that they can make a fortune in like a year or a matter of years, right? That they will be the ones to beat the odds um, and come out millionaires and billionaires. And that there's just all this opportunity lying around waiting for anybody to grasp it. Um, but just like the gold rush, right? That idea of equal opportunity for all is a mirage, it's an illusion. Um, there is so much systemic racism and sexism in the tech industry, just as there was in the original gold rush. And so I, I think a lot about how this, these myths of our culture continue to bubble up and sort of have the same toxic effects, you know, generation after generation, many hundreds of years apart. Um, and so I, yeah, I think I was just really interested in that, exploring that, because it felt, it did feel timeless to me. Um, and there was a little bit of a feeling of sort of defiance in me too, as I worked on this novel. I was like, well, okay, if our culture is going to be so perpetually obsessed with the mythology of the swaggering cowboy in the American West, and we're just going to, you know, devote a disproportionate amount of attention to it, then I'm going to slide into this. I'm going to, you know, plant my flag in the ground. I'm going to make you look at this family of Chinese immigrants um, in this time. And I'm going to center myself in this mythology. That was C. Pam Zhang, preceded by Ross Gay, and we started with Eileen Miles. Next, we have Amy Nizuku-Mitatiel, followed by Lydia Millet and Hanif Abdurraqib. When did you become somebody who uh, maybe like your dad and definitely also like your mom? You write about your mother being a really avid, you know, gardener and cultivator um, who who sort of became, you know, a person who loved the outdoors and wanted to know the names of things and wanted to to write about it. When did Mm -hmm. when did that kind of take when did you uh, give up? give up wanting to be Madonna and start thinking about <laughs> wanting to be a poet, you know, a poet of, of, of the world, of the earth. <laughs> well, let's be clear. I think I always still want to be this 80s pop, the 80s version of Madonna, not, not um, prison. But, but, um, there's something about just 80s glam pop that always will um, appeal to me in some way, shape or form. And, and that's partially, you know, kind of similar to what we were talking about because I never saw anybody that looked like me like that. You know what I mean? Like I too, you know, I mean, I just like Walt Whitman says, do I contain multitudes? Very well. I contain multitudes. You know, I wanted all along there to be like an Asian American woman depicted in movies or TVs or books who loved the outdoors, but also liked glitter and, you know, sparkly Mm. nails or, you know, um, playing around with eyeshadow and who had crushes on boys, but also knew how to garden. You know, I mean, it seemed like for, for so much of my growing up, you had to be one or the other and not both, you know? And so I think part of my threshold is just saying that you can contain multitudes. Um, 
uh, with the outdoors that you don't have to be like, for example, I'm not vegetarian. Um, I try to be, you know, um, many times, but I'm not vegetarian. And for, for many people, that's in direct conflict with their love of the outdoors. And, and I'm here to say it doesn't have to be it de- like there's space for all kinds of people to appreciate the outdoors, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, I guess, I thought the the first part of your question made it sound to be like, um, when did you become your parents? <laughs> and I, <laughs> there was a horror moment, like, no, no, I love my parents, but I don't want to, <laughs> you know, um, you know um, sorry, I, no, no, no. I say that lovingly. Um, I, I adore them. And especially now we're in the middle of the pandemic. I miss them immensely. They're, I'm so happy they've been able to get their second doses of the, um, of the vaccine. So I hope to be able to see them soon. But you know, there's I'm here in Mississippi, and we have no my husband and I, there's, there's no point in sight yet for our vaccine. So it's just been, you know, you're catching me on a good day. But generally, my day is filled with sadness, because I miss them so, so, so much. Um, And I guess to go back to your question, I don't know, I that's just kind of always been the lifestyle that they have and the values that they've kind of instilled in with me. And absolutely, I could say, for example, in college, uh, when I didn't have their direct influence around um, and when I was admittedly mostly um, indoors or mostly in kind of a, in a situation that didn't really allow for much time outdoors, um, it's not like that ever went away fully, but I absolutely wasn't as active or appreciative of the outdoors then. And, um, but I think that's, abs- um, my friends will attest for as long as they've known me, you know, I've, I've been that person that almost drove off her bike, you know, or crashed her bike because I was looking at a bird or, you know, that kind of thing. My, my husband, well, not so much now, but before pandemic time with, you know, part of his goodbye to me when I'd be on the road is, be careful of birds. And it, and that means, oh, not, not to stay away from birds, but he knows darn well that I, I have come close to crashing my car. If I've seen a beautiful flock or a bird that just catches my eye. (laughs) And so I, I have always kind of appreciated that and wanting to find names. And, you know, I see it with my students now is that when they have names for the plants and animals around them, when they get to know that a tree is called, that they pass by all the time on the way to the student union is called Catalpa. And it's the champion tree of Mississippi, for example, meaning the largest one on record. Um, or that the birds that they're seeing bop, bop alongside them on the way to class are pine warblers, not just brown birds, you know, that kind of thing. They start, I mean, I see it across the board they start having uh, a connection to them. They have a tenderness um, towards these creatures and these plants because they have a name for it. It doesn't become this generic bird or this generic plant. You know, there's been in American fiction for some time now, and and, and I say American advisedly, but there, but but it's also elsewhere. But um, there's been this idea that you can't advocate for things within fiction, that fiction, like journalism in a way, needs to affect a sort of value neutrality, a sort of anti-prescriptive 
I would say sort of abdication of uh, sort of larger social critique, macro social critique anyway, so that we are kind of trained to be, um, to, to not ever, for example, like in writing workshops, they say, show, don't tell. Right. And so we're, we're <laughs> sort of trained not to tell in contemporary American literary fiction and maybe even beyond that, but always to show. But of course that only gets you so far. And really the trick is not, not to tell but to establish enough authority in your voice that you can get away with telling, right? And so, um, and without being didactic or pedantic or, you know, um, uh, annoying or boring, or you know, because you're not writing a polemic, you're writing fiction. But I think that the, it takes courage and it's very difficult to to step away from that sort of, I would say, fake objectivity that we are asked to either embrace or pretend to takes courage to step away from that into a more um, sort of uh, what's the word into a a domain where actually the passion that you may feel about certain things is allowed to rise to the surface of the, of the text you know, and so it's easy to write books that are kind of, I think, quite easy to write books that are pretend objective and um, adopt this posture of seeming coldness um, that has been advocated for in, in literary fiction. This, um, this kind of uninvolvement of the conscience of the author in the production of, of fiction. Um, it's easy to write things like that and it's safe to write things like that, but I don't really believe in objectivity and I don't really believe that it needs to be a value of fiction or of any great art. Really. I think that the harder thing is to, move outside that it's easy to be racked with anxiety around quote-unquote authenticity and what one believes and doesn't believe authenticity to be but also because i don't know how to say this gently but i do think that we live in in a time and place and world or whatever where people are really entitled can feel very entitled to the interior lives of folks Mm-hmm. and are resistant to people very intensely guarding what they want to show people and what they want to keep to themselves. I kind of, and I'm not begrudging anyone who says this, but I kind of always laugh a bit or am confused when I see people who are like, why don't you post about your failures on the internet? It's like, well, <laughs> why? I don't understand why that is a requirement for being on the internet or like why that's even something that anyone has an investment in that for in a large public space right Right. um or why that is something that would hinder someone from saying this good thing happened and i'm very proud of it um so these kind of things right they can i think make 
some people, and I, I fell into this a bit, feel a little insecure about the question of authenticity, but really, um, really that, that question for me in the working on, uh, in working on this book, I, I kind of pulled myself away from the shame I'd felt and being wrapped up in it. People think of my work as very, as very personal. And I suppose it is, but I think there's a difference between being personal and being private. You mm -hmm. know, my work I think is deeply personal, but I'm actually a very private person. There's a lot of things about my life that I just, um, particularly in the last two years have just stopped sharing publicly. And, um, that is a boundary that feels really good to me, you know? Um, and I think it's a boundary that makes it clear that I'm interested in a, in a type of interaction that still allows me to cherish the quiet parts of my living that propel me to the work. Um, most of the things that take me to writing are things I don't talk about publicly or things I don't share publicly. And I need to keep those as my own and I need to keep those um, close to me so that I might still feel good about them. That was Sinif Abdurraqib, preceded by Lydia Millet, and we started with Amy Nizuka Matatio. Next up, we have Jericho Brown, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, and Maggie Nelson. My poems arrive at these moments and because they arrive at these moments, I realize I have to live like the poems. And I think maybe there are a lot of people who arrive at moments, but then they don't try to live like the work. And I want to live like the work I'm making. Oh, I want to ask you more about that. Like, can you, because I'm not sure I totally understand what you're saying when you say you arrive at a moment in the poem and then you, you know you want to live like the poem. What is that? Is there a poem that comes to mind where you can help me understand what that meant? Um, I wish I had a, I should have had a book next to me. Hold on one second. Let me get a book. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if I can, I pulled up another elegy. I wonder if I can show you with this. You wipe your up, but love won't move. Uh, this is probably, I could probably use another elegy. Um, to believe in God is to love what none can see. Let a lover go. Let him walk out with the good spoons or die without a signature. And so much remains for scrubbing for a polish cleaner than devotion. Tonight, God is one spot, and you, you must be one blind nun. You wipe, you rub, but love won't move. So literally, and I mean this, Jordan, when I am writing poems, I am trying to figure out what I think. I don't sit down trying to write what I think. As a matter of fact, I sit down thinking, oh, I don't know what I really think. This is a parade and a charade. I'm, I'm pretending. And so this is my opportunity to see what I really think, right? Mm -hmm. And so through the process of writing, I come upon things like, tonight God is one spot and you must be one blind nun. You wipe, <laughs> you rub, but love won't move. And for me, that is the, that, that realization is made real in my life. So there was a time when I thought I could live without the good stuff, love, you know what I mean? Um, and I'm still like this, you know, like I still want to run. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I'm definitely a runner. Um, you know, I get one inkling of some trouble and I'm like, bye, I'll talk to y'all later. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Part of the reason I'm a runner 
is because of the violence. Like, I'm afraid that, like, if I get taken advantage of or somebody acts crazy with me, I'm going to end up killing them. Do you understand what that means? So I'm like, I'd rather just be like, out. I'll, I'll talk to y'all later. Peace. You know what I'm saying? Um, but then, you know, after you write the poem, you write, you rub, but love won't move. You have to be conscious of that and realizing your life. You still have this desire longing. You have this desire and this longing, this this thing in you that wants to be united to another person. Do you follow what I'm saying? And that thing in you that wants to be united to another person, you should bless. You can't run from that. You can't say something's wrong with it. You can't say, oh, Jericho, you're so stupid. you always running behind these men. Do you know, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you have to be honest, right? Um, it also means that when people try to um, make fun of you or berate you, uh, because of your um, your experiences with love, you can't give them any credence. You can't pay them any attention because now you know better because you know what you really think. You know what you really believe. And you have to live by what you really think and what you really believe. And that And that's how I know I'm working with something. When I'm writing a poem, um, and this is, I mean, you know, this is definitely a threshold, right? When I'm writing a poem and I say what surprises me, that's when I know I'm writing a poem. You know, when I'm writing a poem and I'm like, oh, these are nice lines. This sounds good. This is exciting. So what? I'm not moved by what sounds good and is exciting. Not from my own pen, maybe from somebody else's. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But like, if it's my poem, I have to say what I didn't know I already knew. Um, that's Rich, by the way. That's Adrian Rich. Um, but when I get to what I didn't know I already knew, that's when I'm like, oh, but do you act like that, Jericho? Do you live like that? And then I have to change how I live and how I act. I don't think of my writing as activism. I think of it as the way that I can stay alive. And um, so far, it's a strategy that has worked. <laughs> uh, and so I'll keep going, right? And of course, it does reflect my experiences and it does reflect my politics and my... Um, but I think in a lot of ways, I'm kind of, over time, I've been more drawn in writing to sort of, uh, well, that's not true. I think I've always, I've always, um, you know, I write toward the gaps, you know, towards the places mm. where feeling stops, you know, towards um, trauma and impossibility so that maybe I can get somewhere else, but I don't want to um, impose a kind of false narrative of, uh, you know, a kind of we have arrived kind of mentality, which, and in some ways that is very, very connected to the way I think politically, because I think there is this kind of shiny, happy people version of, um, you know, the sweatshop produced rainbow flag mentality of, you know, community, you know, it means like, you know, gentrify a neighborhood and get rid of all the people of color and, you know, sex workers and, um, you know, elders and people with AIDS and um, disabled people. And, and then we've arrived, right? And so, you know, that's the sort of, that's the, the, the politic that probably undergirds everything um, is that I have to challenge that hypocrisy. But I guess over time, I've more and more wanted to challenge also 
maybe even more, the hypocrisy of the queer worlds that are allegedly trying to challenge that viciousness, right? The viciousness of both um, dominant straight, you know, violence and also the viciousness of, you know, mainstream gay assimilation. But I also think there's the violence of a of queer worlds that are very self-congratulatory and, but then also, you know, engage in the same kinds of like shaming and expulsion and um, abuse and, um, but, but with a much more sophisticated rhetoric. And I feel like over time, it's those worlds that have failed me even more um, because I don't believe in, you know, straight normalcy or gay normalcy, but when it's the queer worlds that I believe in that, like, I guess in a way those, the freezer door starts with this question of, or it doesn't start immediately, but uh, you know, it, it centers. There's a lot of questions, but one of them I think is a question of how can I have an embodied self, right? And that I have found these queer worlds where my intellect is valued, my politics are valued, um, my emotions are valued, but my my body is not valued. Or I can be in gay worlds where the only thing that matters is my body and nothing else. And, And there is still this kind of like gender segregation, like queer worlds emerged, you know, to challenge the sort of racism, the body fascism, the misogyny, and the um, internalized and externalized homophobia and transphobia of gay worlds. Um, But they also have their own policing mechanisms that I think, you know, there's this question of like my body, you know, as someone who is male socialized and, you know, um, exists outside of that socialization, but I still have a certain body that is not valued, I think, in most queer worlds, which um, see the body that I have as the enemy. By definition, I have to prove that I belong. And so I guess my question is, in some ways, the lar- I'll, I'll, a larger question is, what would a world look like where we don't have to prove that we belong? You know, mm. not a world where we all belong, but more like a world where no one belongs, right? Like, because mm-hmm. there's always a kind of hierarchy when someone belongs and someone doesn't. I mean, Roland Barthes, who's like my teacher in, in all things, you know, like, there's a really great exchange in, I can't remember, I think it's in the neutral, some book where like he, someone accuses him of paying, playing fast and loose, I think with Buddhism, actually, maybe Japanese um, versions of such. And, and he kind of offers this little mini, uh, mini sermon about how he says like, Oh, but you misunderstand me. I don't pretend to mastery or something. And I, and I always had that. I, I, I have had that line in my head forever. Just like, Oh, you misunderstand. I don't pretend to mastery, you know, and you know, it can be like an evasive thing to say, but in my case, you know, and I think also in his, it's certainly very true. So I think that, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's come from my whole life. I mean, I can remember, um, when I was in high school, we were given, I don't know if it was from like life magazine or something, we were given a whole feature in a magazine that was different people answering the question, like, what is the meaning of life? And the assignment we were given by the teacher was to, like, pick the quote that 
what's most compelling to us and like write an explanation of why, you know? Um, and I, and the quote that I picked was, you know, not knowing who he was, but I know I picked a quote by John Cage and, um, I think it was just something, you know, relatively tautological, like the meaning of life is to find out what the meaning of life or to ask what the meaning of life is or something like that. But I think, um, you know, that was the first time, like, uh, you know, and John Cage was, uh, like an important figure for me because he bridged interest I had in, you know, avant-garde art and in meditation and silence and in Buddhist philosophy. And so, um, he, he kind of became like the patron saint of the art of cruelty in a strange way, mm-hmm. um, because of his interest in space making and forgive me if I'm just going on and on, but like, uh, his idea about making space, which is also about constraint because, you know, of obviously in his most famous piece of sitting in silence for four, you know, odd minutes, like, and listening, it's like this this whole idea of a of a kind of liberation through practice um, that often has a codified um, you know setting of you know of of whether it's temporal or being seated or waiting for the gong or acts of attention. Um, so that but that space making dovetailed to to me in an interesting way with Hannah Arendt's and actually Foucault to some extent's descriptions of. Um, freedom as a kind of uh, degrees of domination and it's like in, in a kind of space making way like you know like the, the like the, the the more you know the, the the less space there were you know the more domination kind of closed in and then um the you know then then things that were more space making you know offered more chances for indeterminacy and freedom and that the, the kind of intersection of the political discourse that certainly Arendt had in mind and then this more um uh philosophical slash Buddhist idea that I've been really interested in, in the art of cruelty vis-a-vis John Cage, um, you know, began kind of, um, you know, ended up being more central in this book. But, you know, Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy is um, so distinct in that, you know, in the moment of, you know, Siddhartha becoming the Buddha and like the moment of enlightenment, you know, when he's challenged about you know, how does he know, you know, he puts his hand on the earth and says, the earth is my witness, right? So there's like this kind of coming down to earth, this kind of touching and like staying with the trouble mm-hmm. that's kind of at the base is like a foundational gesture, you know, of sitting with. And I think that that is so clearly the kind of patron sentiment um, throughout this book, which, I mean, I think this becomes most apparent in the climate chapter when I'm talking about Bruno Latour, who has these kind of new formulation of politics instead of kind of right or left that he's postulating. We talk about the out of this world versus the down to earth, you know, and that the out of this world is the kind of like, well, we've really made a mess here. We better like set up on Mars or, you know, put our consciousnesses in the cloud or, you know, if we have to stay here, let's try and, you know, buy a, you know, a, a, mansion with a moat with a you know blackwater armed force in new zealand or something where the climate will stay good and will keep out the hordes of you know poor refugees that are losing their habitable land and you know like those are all kind of um or even you know america you know make america great again and and you know border uh, obsessions and nationalism that all these things can be you know he aligns them all with what he calls out of this world, you know, as opposed to a down to earth. And I think that this book is very firmly in a, you know, what what kinds of freedom and liberation are on offer to us were we to squarely stay here, you know, with each other. 
And that's it. That's our recap for 2021. Thank you so much for listening with us this year. We appreciate you. We're going to take a couple weeks off and we'll be back in the new year with new guests and some new ideas. Until then, take care. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week.